Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. This episode of Clever is supported by Exhibit. If you have more artwork and photos than wall space, or little time to swap them out for a fresh look, then you need Exhibit. Exhibit is a quick and easy solution for turning a flat-looking display into floating art that takes your gallery wall to the next level. With Exhibit, you can simply lift up the creation and swap it out for another without removing any hardware off the wall. It's that easy to change the whole look of your room, anytime you want. Learn more at myexhibit.com. That's M-Y-X-I-B-I-T dot com. The power of this moment is understanding the things that are broken, naming them, being really clear about it. And that's part of what's happening right now. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Joel Towers. Joel Towers is a professor of architecture and sustainable design at Parsons School of Design, where he also recently completed serving two terms as executive dean. Under his leadership... Parsons completed major curricular reforms, launched several new graduate and undergraduate programs, constructed an integrated 27,000 square foot cross-disciplinary facility, and raised millions of dollars in scholarship research and capital funds. 
Today, the school is one of the most internationally diverse anywhere in the U.S. Joel is also the director of the Tishman Environment and Design Center, which fosters the integration of bold design, policy, and social justice approaches to environmental issues to advance just and sustainable outcomes in collaboration with communities. Let's talk to Joel. My name is Joel Towers. I live in New York City, and I'm an architect and an educator. I'm a professor of architecture and sustainable design at Parsons School of Design at the New School. And uh, I teach, I research on climate change. Uh, Occasionally, I practice architecture, though less these days. And I do what I do in large part because I think we live in one of the most extraordinary moments in history of tremendous opportunity and tremendous change. And largely that has to do with climate, which we're going to talk about today. Ooh, that was a beautiful setup. And now I'm so excited to get into it. But um, but I do always like to get a sense of the person I'm talking to and how you got to be you. So I like to go back to the beginning. Will you tell me about where you grew up, what your childhood was like, your family, and how you got interested in architecture? I grew up uh, just north of New York City. Uh, my parents were from Brooklyn. They're first generation born in the U.S., and they made the big move out of the city up to first New Haven and then uh, to Westchester, about uh, a half hour north of the city, which is where I was born. And so I lived in the suburbs of New York. And so my experience was one of kind of a combination of the sort of privilege that is the suburbs and a connection to the city. Uh, This was, I was born in 1965. So New York City and the Early 70s was a place of, let's say, some questionable repute. (laughs) It was a challenging time, but my parents, my father worked in the city and my my parents were very committed to it. And so we grew up neighboring it and engaging with it. And it was always a place of great draw for me. But, you know, suburban life is also a kind of uh, protection and distance from that. And so I, I sort of grew up in between these two worlds. But my father, was, who was in marketing and communications, uh, said to me once, um, if he, he could have done it over again, he would have been an architect. He was a very big influence on me. He died as a, a, a relatively young man at 56 years old. But uh, he had a very big influence on the way I viewed the world and how I sort of was or am in it. Mm-hmm. And a big piece of that had to do with teaching me to to work with my hands, to be a builder. I mean, I would go on to apprentice as a carpenter before I studied architecture and kind of take it to another level. But uh, he was my first teacher in building and really connecting to materials and making and a belief that you could essentially repair anything. (laughs) He didn't buy a lot of new stuff, um, but he did believe you could fix anything. And he taught me to do that. It's really always, I think, influenced how I look at problem solving. That's how I've come to understand it. Yeah, this is amazing. Do you think in part, um, I'm imagining that you had space to do this in the suburbs. So in some way, the suburban life sort of afforded that kind of material exploration in your youth. It wasn't a big shop. My dad was not like a 
you know, he didn't, he didn't have one of those sort of home shops with all the big standing equipment and that kind of stuff. There were some neighbors who did. I learned to turn wood on a lathe on a, in one of our neighbor's houses. Um, he was more hand tools, uh, very kind of um, low tech. And I used to mess with his tools. I used to like take his wood chisels out in the back and start, you know, chiseling away on stone. Man, oh, that God. was... That was, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I learned the hard way on those. Um, so I, I, I learned a respect for materials um, and, and tools in particular uh, by, um, you know, uh, pissing my father off to no end. Uh, so it wasn't quite the kind of leave it to beaver home. It was definitely not that. It was, you know, a sort of Brooklyn kid in the suburbs, uh, but it really interesting. It was a kind of hybrid, but yes, this, I mean, the suburbs have a kind of space, a, a sort of lack of constraint that is uh, connected to them in a certain way. I think there are all sorts of constraints in the suburbs, you know, you know, my parents were born sure, in the I mean, early thirties. Like, yeah. We don't, we don't have to sort of go to, uh, you know, 1950s culture in the suburbs to, to know what those constraints were, but it, but it also afforded a kind of space. I think you're right about that to be able to sort of test things out. It would really inform my commitment to uh, urbanism and the city ultimately. I'm seeing how fascinating this would be to go between those two worlds, to to have the, the best of both worlds in many ways, um, because you, you know, frequently people who grew up in the suburbs or in small towns felt trapped and, and needed an extra sense of the world and culture and all of the richness that a, a really urban environment like New York City provides. Um, but you had that. You had that at your disposal. Um, you were close to it. And then you also could maybe enjoy some of the space that the suburbs provided in terms of your material exploration and being able to just have a backyard and wood chisels, <laughs> you know, a garage maybe. <laughs> And neighbors with a shop uh, yep. without feeling trapped. I can see how those would really inform you. And there's something really beautiful about learning to think with your hands while, you're, while your brain is still developing. Uh, you said it became the mechanism for which you thought about solving problems. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, when people ask, you know, what do you do? Or I, I think of myself as a builder. I think, I think of that Morse and in lots of ways, you know, literally physically making things, but also sort of building, um, nurturing, growing in that sense as well. So it's a, it definitely is, um, core to who I am. And I, just to go back to your, the point about the sort of best of both worlds, it, in the particular moment we're in right now, amidst the, the sort of rising chorus of, of calls for justice and dismantling of, of systems of structural racism. The, the incredible privilege that best of both worlds represents is not lost on me. There's a way in which coming from that kind of uh, opportunity sets one up for success, um, that, which is, you know, deeply structural. It, it hasn't, I hope ever been lost on me, but to come to realize it and particularly to see it through the moment that we're living in through the kind of teaching and work I've tried to do. It's very real that there, that we live in a country with many, many different kinds of privilege and opportunity that are afforded to some and not to others. I agree with that. And I think it's healthy that we recognize it 
talk about it and engage in conversations about how to wield it in meaningful and artful ways towards more justice. Yes. Thank you. You said that better than I did. So having this sort of foundation of building uh, and your father's leanings towards building and architecture, did that continue into your adolescence? Is How did your curiosity and your creativity start to manifest in adolescence? It was definitely a part of it. But, you know, I said my parents were from Brooklyn and um, my dad in particular was not somebody who was a big lover of nature. Like there were no plants in the house. Plants belonged outside, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet I uh, somehow, and I don't know, again, whether that's the conditions of my growing up, but I, I had and really uh, equally strong in me as a kind of deep and abiding connection to the to the natural world, um, to the world beyond humans. <laughs> and uh, when I was 16, I had the opportunity to spend a month in Wyoming doing a backcountry uh, learning, like a, a class with a group called Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, still around. And we were in Wyoming for a month. as uh, a friend of mine who went along also for that trip. And it was the kind of experience that changes your life, in my opinion, because this very uh, sort of protected, cultivated view of nature that you get when you live in the suburbs is very different when you're in the Wind River mountain range in Wyoming. And you learn very quickly both the respect and the knowledge necessary to be safe in the backcountry, but also the, the role, if you will, or the position of humans in that context um, very differently than you do when you're uh, living 30 minutes north of New York City. And so that Knowles course uh, really opened my eyes to how incredible it felt and how um, fragile it felt and also how motivating it was to be a part of a larger, what I would say today, a part of a larger system. I don't think I thought of it that way when I was 16, but I certainly some sense that there is way more than just um, the small world around me. The, my adolescence really was a combination of those two things, of this sense of being a builder and a maker and this um, deep and abiding commitment to something bigger than myself in terms of the natural environment. And the tension sometimes between those two and seeking to find an alignment between them really was the the focus of what would become my college studies uh, at Michigan and then later at Columbia but also really the foundation of my um, professional career. Yes. And researching you, I, I see that trying to find alignment between the built world and the natural world is, yeah. first of all, it's what we have to do to survive and find balance. I would say that it's what you just said seems so self-evident today, but that's a relatively recent observation to be self-evident. I think a lot of people would agree with you, but it's it's relatively recent that people are like, we have to do this to survive. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you because uh, I was born in 71, so I'm only a few years younger. And I grew up in a time where, you know, it was a bit more industrial. It was about volume and it was not about alignment. 
it's only in my adult life that I've been able to understand the tension between the two and feel really uncomfortable about that tension and also try to seek alignment. And it is it is new. But the fact that you were studying this back in, what are we saying, late 80s at U of M? Yeah, I was 83. I started at, Mich- at University of Michigan. You would have been ahead of the curve and probably finding a lot more resistance in the in the regular <laughs> mainstream society, right? You know, one of my architecture professors from Michigan, Ian Tabner was his name. And he's, he said to me, he was from Canada. <laughs> he said, but there's this, there was this expression he used to use. He'd say, you know, in America, if brute force engineering isn't working, you're not using enough. <laughs> and that really was the ethos of it, is that through design, through architecture, through engineering, through industrial society, you could control anything. And that there would be, you know, better living through chemistry, right? Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The, the, the idea was that the systems were knowable and controllable in a way that I think what we've realized is that there's a tremendous amount of knowledge necessary, certainly to engage in, in the complexity that is the environment and climate in which we live. But there also is a kind of humility and respect that is essential and that, that, that resources aren't limitless and figuring out how to live a really, really good life with with that kind of tension, uh, you know, Ezio Manzini, the you know the uh, designer and and thinker from Italy, uh, his definition of sustainability is learning to live better with less. He combines the two. Right? Mm-hmm. That it's this. It's not about a, an impoverished life, but it is about understanding how to live better. Uh, within the constraints and the balance that we seek between the natural world and humans who are a part of that world. I like how you paint this because it helps me understand. It used to be really about trying to dominate and control nature so that we could control for uncertainty and maximize, I don't know, profits and systems in that way. And I really think that the idea of humility and synergy and harmony are more useful in terms of the natural world, which will always be able to dominate humans. That shift in thinking really comes from the emergence of a feminist critique of environmental thinking. So there's a long tradition of that work that really emerges in alignment with larger feminist critiques of uh, power structures and systems and so forth. You studied architecture at U of M and Columbia, as you said, and that was the focus of your of your collegiate career was aligning the built world and the natural world. Is there anything else that you should tell us about your college years? I mean, what about you personally? Did you find a kind of agency or a rebellion or anything that sort of informed your adult ways? Mm. Both, you know, Ann Arbor and Columbia were were sites of, of course, historical and critical rebellion in the '60s. And when you went to school there in the '80s, I think there was a little bit of a, a sort of wishfulness for those times when the campuses were the center of the cultural production in the United States, and and it had long since left both of them. They were actually far more conservative not in the way we would talk about that today, but they were not as radical by the 80s as they were uh, 
uh, in, in perhaps in the heyday of their um, critical position. Although I do remember that when I got to Ann Arbor, Ronald Reagan was just about to be reelected in a landslide. <laughs> and uh, uh, Ann Arbor was the one county that he lost in Michigan. So we felt good about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't call it a kind of radical uh, exposure, although at Columbia, it was a very, very interesting time in the sense that architecture, the, the end of the 80s, there was a kind of mini recession by today's standards. In fact, the year that I graduated in 1990, something like 20% of the architectural profession had decided that it was no longer suitable to to their employment <laughs> goals. Um, and there was a mass exodus from architecture. It was the early days of what got called paper architecture. Uh, Bernard Shumi, Hani Rashid, um, Daniel Liebeskin, Zaha Hadid, before she was actually building things. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of that work was out of necessity because nothing was being built at that mm. time. And so there was already a sense that the field was in something of a crisis. It was very early days in the in the computer and, and particularly computer-aided design revolution. Uh, Columbia, which would eventually become one of the centers of, of really using digital design as a design tool um, at the time that I was there, didn't have any computers in the studios. In fact, I, I ran the wood shop when I was um, a student there, a graduate student, and uh, we built the first computer lab that would um, eventually teach something called the Graduate School Design Language, GSDL, which was mm-hmm. a, a kind of internal coding language for you know uh, 3D modeling. It was really, really early days. And so I, I would say people were starting to wake up to the idea that you could enter the field of architecture as a way of organizing knowledge and building in ways that were not li- limited to physical structures. And uh, Bernard had a lot to do with introducing that kind of criticality to the work. And he was a pretty transformative dean at the mm-hmm. school. And so I was definitely exposed to all of that, but I was, you know, the kid with a long hair and ponytail and who was a tree hugger back then. In fact, when I graduated from Columbia, I went on my second Knowles trip. I went to Alaska, really needed to kind of decompress and thought very seriously about uh, staying in Alaska and teaching with the school there, you know, doing the instructor's course and, and staying on and teaching, which they asked me to do, um, it was a really critical moment in decision-making in my life. You know, do I, do I leave the city? Do I kind of uh, reject all of this moment of crisis in the field and kind of retreat to this incredible wilderness? I mean, Denali National Park is where a lot of their uh, courses are and where we were climbing. It's just one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I could have stayed there and taught you know, young people to, to understand how to respect nature and figure out how to be safe and enjoy backcountry and all of those things. And my father had just passed away that year. So it was Mm -hmm. also very kind of like, what am I looking for Mm -hmm. uh, now? And, and I, that was really when I decided to commit to finding that alignment, that it was a very conscious decision on my part that I would return to New York and I would seek to bring these two strains of thought 
together. And I ended up working for Bill McDonough pretty soon after that, first for Michael Sorkin, who very sadly just passed away from COVID-19, brilliant, brilliant architect and urbanist. And I worked for Michael for a while and then got a job for working with Bill McDonough and ultimately directed a project. Uh, we, I was a, the lead architect for a competition that we won in Frankfurt and Germany. And at the time, uh, Bill got hired to write the design guidelines for the World's Fair from a sustainability perspective that would be in Hanover, Germany in, at the turn of the century, the year 2000. So this was 1991, and Hanover was awarded the World's Fair for 2000, and they hired Bill to write these guidelines for all of the buildings and the site that would be transformed into the World's Fair, and to do so with an, a sustainability overlay, which was a totally new concept, right? It's, yes. it's literally four years uh, after the Brundtland Commission report comes out from the UN that first establishes sustainable development as a term. And it's really nowhere in the field other than a couple of practices, Bill, um, Randy Croxton, a few others who are really doing this work. I got the chance to direct this project to write the Hanover Principles Design for Sustainability, um, which really codified a lot of Bill's thinking at the time. And uh, I worked with an environmental philosopher, David Rothenberg, who did a lot of the, the sort of background work. And as an architecture office, we framed what it meant to take sustainability into account when thinking about the building of this world's fairgrounds and use that as a jumping off point to speak more broadly to design around this issue. So it, it, was, it was really heady days to be doing yeah. that work. Wow. That's like the first cookbook on the subject. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's absolutely right. It, 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 it felt very much like it, at least in this period. I mean, when you, when you start looking historically, of course, there have been cookbooks for hundreds of years on sustainability and climate change and climate science. But in this modern period, and I think in particular in this moment when the crisis of sustainability and ultimately climate become existential, this was the first cookbook in that context. Were you aware at the time? Did you did you feel the weight of its meaning and gravity? I was 25. I'm not sure that I could feel the weight and gravity at the moment. <laughs> um, but it felt like we were doing something important. You know, Bill uh, would be invited to the Rio Earth Summit um, in 1992, where he introduced the work. That meeting of the UN was really the first meeting to establish the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It sets up all of these future uh, meetings that are, you know, called the COP. The the like the COP twenty five is the Paris Climate Accords. The, these are the um, conference of the parties, the signatories to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, okay. and that's nineteen ninety two. That's the Earth Summit that starts that work. Um, it's what Kyoto protocols come out of. It's, you know, all of this is really the beginning. And so for me as a professional, it mm -hmm. felt very natural to say, look, you're, you're in the field of building. You're essentially using the constraints of the world around you as a set of guidelines for guideposts for what can be built and should be built. 
And we need to understand this question of long-term sustainability in relationship to that, because so much, and this goes to that 50s mentality we spoke about earlier, so much was planned obsolescence. So Mm. much was, you know, use it now, live in the moment. If you buy a house and you get a mortgage, it's a 20-year or a 30-year commitment at the end of which, you know, the bank has already amortized it down to zero, so it has no value anymore, even though its environmental cost is just even, you know, beginning to be paid off. And so there was a, there's a way in which we're talking about totally changing what I sometimes call the criteria for success, right? What, how, yeah. are we, how are we measuring what we do and what are we measuring it against? So it's not just the commercial success of a, any particular product or a building or, or an enterprise. It's what's its impact on this broader system? And, and is it part of helping to build a kind of balance that is uh, viable over the long term. You say 92. How much has changed? I mean, that's a big question. But I mean, in terms of the codifying this kind of thinking, is it still relatively aligned? Well, first of all, I think so much has changed. The reality is that this is sometimes frustrating work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah. you, you see the house is on fire. Like think of any speech that Greta Turnberg has given right? Where she's yeah. like, our house is on fire, right? And she is, she is giving voice to a level of frustration that her generation feels deeply. Because if we've known the house is on fire and we're just sitting around twiddling our thumbs while Rome burns, the question is, what the hell are we doing? Right. right? And so you, you can, it, this work can be frustrating. And it can be, you know, when politicians lie or they intentionally distort the science or create their own false science or false controversies or false equivalencies. This stuff can be super frustrating. Oh, that would drive me. I mean, it does. It drives me crazy. Well, crazy. And also like, you know, this, our lives depend on this. Right. So like, not only are you, for, for whatever reasons, are you preserving your power or trying to win in whatever short term when that means, but you're screwing around with our lives. And so the work can be very frustrating, but to suggest that things haven't changed, which I think sometimes gets sort of wrapped into that, like it's just the same, it's always been the same. I don't agree with that at all. I think there's a tremendous amount of knowledge and in fact, really good case studies of what a future might look like when we rebalance, and we will ultimately do so, rebalance uh, human nature relations. This is a kind of awkward way of saying when we recognize that the time in which we're living demands of us to live differently. And the us in that sentence could be, you know, the seven plus billion people who live on the planet, or it could be a lot less of us if we uh, really don't take heed you know, James Lovelock was once asked what he thought the global population would be in 2100, I think. And he said very dryly, well, about a billion people. And, you know, the interviewer nearly fell off his chair because that would be a die off of six or seven billion people. And it was a statement about what he thought the carrying capacity of the planet was given the ways in which we're approaching our lives. And um, I don't see it that way. Um, I think we're smarter than that. I think we live in a 
in a moment in which a lot of the sort of pushback and the stuff that makes me so pissed off and frustrated is actually a kind of harbinger of the change. We're in the sort of death throes of an of a old system that no longer works, and it's trying to maintain its relevance while a new system emerges. And that's always a very disruptive moment. I, I think my reaction to the, to the pandemic is that it's a kind of, uh, it's a warm up to the big change that will be coming our way. I don't disagree. I, I think there's a, a lot of change that needs to happen that is going to happen, and it's not going to happen necessarily easily or, or cleanly. No. But, well, we're seeing um, that right now. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the, the point of what you said so eloquently before, that you know, we, we live in a country that needs to be moving towards racial justice. You know, my God, how, how long have we been saying that? Well, it's and, built on racial injustice. I mean, it's yeah. built on oppression. You know, the system's not broke. The system was designed to work like this. If you look at some of those other talks that I've given that we, we uh-huh. mentioned earlier, I say that the world was designed to be the way it is. It was just yeah. designed poorly. Yes. But the optimistic part of that is means it doesn't have to be designed this way. Right. I remember watching your video when you said that and I got goosebumps because it doesn't have to be designed this way. And some of it was unintentional, but a lot of it was intentional. And it can that means it can be designed better. And that's right. That's the power of this moment. And yes. the, the power of this moment is understanding the things that are broken, naming them, being really clear about it. And that's part of what's happening right now. We're naming systems of injustice. We're naming systems that are linear and don't have resilience. Uh, we're naming systems that um, serve the few and not the many. And by naming them, we identify what we can and must change about them. The reason this is such an exciting time to do this work, and that to back to where we started in the beginning, is that everything has to change. There's never been a better time to be a designer. And I don't mean that just like an architect, a designer. I mean the kind of person who's a problem solver in whatever field you are working in. Uh, if you bring that kind of perspective around design being an approach to solving problems, to sort of identifying and seeing where you can redirect, where the revolutionary moment is not a radical break, but a kind of shifting and um, you know mm-hmm. it's a it, it's not an ahistorical uh, moment but also one that says we cannot continue to have systems of oppression and make of our species a kind of destroyer of the world that would be the great tragedy and i don't think we will do that i think humans are really really wickedly smart and creative um, when they want to be and uh it's a time for that well, absolutely. And I, I mean, this all sounds like it's um, some of the reasoning that drew you to becoming an educator. Mm, yes. We'll be right back after this quick break. This episode of Clever is supported by the new season of Wireframe, a podcast all about how UX, that's user experience, can help technology fit into our lives. Hosted by Koi Vin, Senior Director of Design at Adobe, Wireframe is a show for designers and the design curious, leaning into how design intersects with current events and life changes. For example, how has the pandemic changed our habits and lives? 
How are designers trying to make voting easier? And how user experience can actually help people manage stress better. Hear from designers and leaders who have built UX and UI experiences for companies like Headspace, Patreon, Kickstarter, Withings, and more. I got a preview listen of Wireframe's upcoming season, and it's sort of like an anecdotal exploded view of how design decisions impact our lives and culture. It's both fascinating and entertaining. Just search Wireframe in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're using right now, and visit this episode's show notes for a link to subscribe. Black Artists and Designers Guild is a global platform founded by Melanie Barnett, representing a curated collective of independent Black artists, makers, and designers across various art and design disciplines who are at the top of their respective fields. For their latest project, Bad Guild has created a virtual dwelling in the hills of Oakland, California, part of the greater Silicon Valley footprint. Using an actual site, the virtual structure is set in the year 2025. Designed by Bad Guild creators, these creators include architects, interior designers, fine artists, furniture makers, and lighting designers. The home will imagine a future domicile, utilizing cutting-edge smart home technology integrated with advanced sustainable systems and practices. This home embraces a multiplicity of Black family identities as a common unit while permitting dignified individual expressions of the household. Find the directory and learn more about the mission at badguild.info slash B-A-D-G dash house. That's B-A-D-G-U-I-L-D dot info slash B-A-D-G dash house. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. 
On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I can see how your impact would be able to be multiplied um, over all the students and everyone in the academic community that you come into contact with. So as well as feeling this incredible sense of alliance with the next generation who's going to be solving these problems and wanting to work alongside them. You know, I'm such a a big believer in the next generation, but I also want to speak for the 55-year-olds among us, <laughs> 50-year-olds <Yes>. <laughs> among us, um, because it's it, we cannot shift this responsibility to the uh, younger generations. We have our own responsibilities to continue to put our shoulder to the wheel as well. And so 
the difference is that the generation that is now in their 20s, you know, roughly, is the last generation, you know, the, this, the change has to occur now. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so they are a big, big part of the change. They know that. I think they're, they get frustrated um, with our, the old, older generation's inaction or ineptitude or unwillingness to really challenge the power structures that need to be challenged in order to make change. So I do think there's a kind of generational clash built into that. But education, your sense of why it was, why the alignment and the um, appeal of education to me personally was such a draw, it really was about scale. Um, at a certain point, the architectural work that I was doing was only able to have so much influence and impact. And I loved that work. I still love that work, but um, I wanted to scale that impact up. I felt that the that the best use of my skills and my um, energy was to sort of broaden the number of people who were thinking about creative solutions to this problem from a range of different disciplines. And so this last uh, decade and a half has really been incredibly rewarding in that regard. I'm with you and I share your desire to scale, but I also share your um, feeling of responsibility. But I don't want to make it sound like I uh, was insinuating that you were handing off the responsibility to the next generation. But I do think there is power in numbers. Mm. And as a 55-year-old going up against the status quo, if you also have the power of energetic 20-year-olds along with you, you kind of have a little bit more of a, or more wind, more force to to become the the battering ram, don't you think? I do. And I guess my friendly amendment to that um, picture is that in many cases, we'll be following them. What I would say there is um, I want to lend my energy, put my shoulder to the wheel. I mean, a lot of the Green New Deal um, emerges from people a lot younger than I am, although, you know, Senator Markey is there as well. So like, you know, let's... It's not just AOC. It's yeah. it, there's there's a multi generational effort there. She gets she tends to be the face of it, but it, there's a lot of people who are who are engaged. But my my point is only that it's not about who's leading and who's following, but that we are all engaged in a paradigm change, and um, and there will be moments where different different people need to lead lead and different groups need to follow. Um, I don't think we're in a kind of classically modernist, hierarchical, great man of history moment. Um, I think that's gotten us precisely into the shithole that we're in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And don't follow that path anymore. It just yeah. <laughs> leads you deeper into the shithole. So, I mean, where are you now in terms of your career? You you spent a decade as the executive dean of Parsons. I know you're still a university pro- professor and you're still really active on this front. What does your career and your research look like and how are you angling it? Like towards what? Being a builder, I, I've realized, I think, in projects. And uh, only in retrospect can I sort of look back on the period of time that I for example, uh, co-founded a 
an architecture office with a good friend of mine, Carla Rostein, who's still, uh, she and her husband continued to practice in that. My wife is also an architect and we continued, in fact, the four of us collaborated on some projects over the years, but there was a period of time where I was an architect, period. <laughs> um, it wasn't the project of, of a particular house or office project or whatever that I was defining that by, but the project of being an architect. And it occupied a good 15, 18 years. It overlapped a little bit with my time uh, more actively joining uh, Parsons. Uh, I was teaching at Columbia and um, City College before that. But, uh, but when I joined Parsons, I entered into a kind of academic project, if you will. Uh, and when I think about this last decade, that project has really been the reshaping of design education. Parsons, I think now sounding terribly immodest, uh, has taken the lead in doing a lot of that work um, and has really formulated a, a set of curricula that incorporate a lot of what we are talking about here and a kind of hybridization or transdisciplinarity about design that I feel is really part of the future and puts design as a, as a knowledge set uh, on the table or at the table in decision-making mm -hmm. as a critical component. That project, I think, is well underway. And so I'm now thinking about what is the next project. I'm not sure that I can define that entirely yet. Some of this will emerge through the work. But it is clearly about the scaling up of the what sometimes gets called a just transition. The scaling up of the work to see societies around the world move fully into a period of time which often gets referred to as the Anthropocene, in which the human species comes to fully accept and reconcile the fact that we are the dominant force changing the planet, that we've created a new geological age as a result of our actions. And that either is a kind of end of times statement or the beginning of a pretty radical shift in human nature relations. And so being the optimist, I choose the latter. And it requires of us almost a kind of the construction of philosophies of the Anthropocene. Um, yeah. To know how to live in this time, to know how to take what we were talking about before, the feminist critique of so much, and turn this into a period that is really about a mutuality of knowing, a caring culture, uh, a kind of um, deconstruction of traditional hierarchical systems of power. Uh, the Anthropocene is female. It, it sure as hell better be, because if it's not, <laughs> we're really screwed. Um, and so what does that look like? How does that not become something that people are terrified of, but rather something that people see as the opportunity of this moment? You know, Marx, to sort of paraphrase Karl Marx, he says something like, Nobody gets to choose the time in which they live, only how you react to it. You know, we were, we were all born into the Anthropocene. So here is where I would say, you know. Can you, can you break that concept down for us a, yeah. a bit so we make sure we're understanding you? I, I, and, you know, my version of it, right? Because there are scientists who spend their entire career kind of trying to define this stuff. But in general, the planet <laughs> that mm -hmm. we live on, that we call home, um, has gone through many geological ages, Um the one that most people are familiar with would be the Jurassic, because they remember Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, okay. the age of the dinosaurs. 
all of these different geological timeframes and something happens and a new geological timeframe begins. And it could be the disruptions from the meteor impact that ends the age of the dinosaurs, for example. Humans and mostly uh, human civilization, so not humans as a species, but human civilization as we know it, the last, say, 12,000 years of culture and civilization um, that have really defined the, the rise of agriculture, the ultimately the great leap forward of, of knowledge and um, industrial production. All of that happens in around a 12,000-year period that coincides with a very stable geological epoch called the Holocene. The last ice age is over. Humans have figured out some things <laughs> mm -hmm. in our years of evolution. And um, we have this incredible flourishing of culture and technology. And we go from a very, very small species up until about the mid early 1800s, when there's still not quite a billion people on the planet. And then in the last 100 years, 150 years, we grow to 7 billion plus. All of that happens during this stable geological period. So if you think about it, the Holocene in my language is the background, meaning yeah. it was so stable and so predictable that you could count on the seasons, you could get to, to sort of understand the rhythms of nature. A lot of that was frightening to people. They were, you know, nature was fear inducing and brutal, mm -hmm. but over time um, we came to understand it as something that had occasional episodic convulsions a volcano like uh, Mount Vesuvius goes off, right? But they happen in this way that is on a 100 or 200 or 500 year time cycle. So as an architect, for example, when you design a building, you look at a 100 year storm and you say, what's the most amount of snow that you might expect or the most amount of rain that you might expect in a 100 year storm? And you're structuring your building to account for that kind of risk. Well, what's happened in the most recent period of time is that 100-year storms are happening every couple of years. And they're happening at that quickening pace precisely because of global climate change. The environment has become less predictable. That's why climate change or climate variability is the language you sometimes hear scientists talk about. Global warming was never a very good phrase to describe it because you right. might have a, a really cold period of time and people would you know, like James Inhofe would say, there is no, there's no climate change because it snowed in February in Washington. And he brings a snowball into the U.S. Senate to make his point, right? The Anthropocene is a marking of the end of the Holocene and the beginning of a new geological epoch. And it is, an, and it is named for the age of the new human. That's what the Anthropocene is. And what it means is, that the forces shaping the background, the context, have changed. It's no longer stable. We can't count on its stability anymore. We have introduced variability through the burning of fossil fuels and all sorts of other activities like the pollution of groundwater and you know, other incredibly <laughs> important aspects of, of our life support systems. Human action is now defining the 
context in which we live. And so the background has become the foreground. Everything that we think about now has to be related to this variable climate, to our impact on its variability. If we burn more fossil fuel, it will become even more difficult to be able to understand what are the likely implications of going above two degrees Celsius warming on a global average. And so variability and change define the Anthropocene and um, humans are the force behind it. And that's just sort of the way it is. Now the question is, what do you do about that? Well, and that's, that's your central question, right? Is in framing this philosophy of what the criteria for success is. Yes. It, yeah. Exactly. Let's get into that. Yeah. Because Man, you're fascinating. I love this. <laughs> well, because like, if you say, look, are you successful? And usually the answer to that is yes. If what you have to offer is desirable. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right? I'm trying like, it's like, you know, uh, is Mark Zuckerberg successful? Successful? Sure. People want what he has to offer uh, until they don't. You know, uh, was Steve Jobs successful? Sure. Is, is fast food desirable? Well, it's been really successful in the sense that people desire it, right? So it used to be that the commercial success, it still is in many ways, that the commercial success is the measure that we go by to say, yes. But frequently it was kind of the only measure. The only, absolutely the only measure. And so now what we are layering into this are a set of criteria that are not easily measurable in the kind of limited economic terms by which we have measured success in the past. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that desirability goes out the window. Far from it. It means that we have to layer into that issues of equity, of environmental justice in that sense, but I mean that both broadly as it relates to issues of structural racism, but also as it relates to intergenerational uh, environmental justice, what it means to be offering future generations a world that is not impoverished. We have to be layering into this the uh, environmental cost of the things we make. So if we had to account for the human and environmental cost of our cell phones, the raw materials, the incredible human cost and strife and war that goes along with the mining of the materials for the cell phone batteries, the labor implications of the global supply chain for cell phones, right? Would we Mm -hmm. still consider them to be a success because so many of of us have them in our hands and find them indispensable? And I would argue if something is part of destroying the future, if something is part of perpetuating systems of abuse and exploitation, if something is part of polluting the river in both literal and metaphorical terms, how can it be beautiful? How can it be successful? Nobody wants to do those things, but the choices that are put in front of them don't fully account for those costs. And some of that is regulatory a word that will alienate probably, well, I don't know who what the audience is here, but it will certainly alienate a number of people to say that regulation is actually a good thing. But I would say as a designer, the hardest thing you can do for a designer is to not give them any constraints. That's what I was going to say. Regulatory, that's a parameter. That's just a parameter that's exactly. to, to work within. Yeah. Yeah. But to take the politics of the moment, you know, I mean, what one of the things uh, President Trump is most proud of is the number of regulations he's gotten rid of, Right. Um, as if regulation is in and of itself bad. 
part of this is going to have to require a level of willingness to put certain constraints in the re- regulatory environment. And places that have done that, where you see higher regulatory constraint, have often found um, solutions that are far more equitable and environmentally resilient and sustainable. They tend to be societies that share wealth more uh, evenly. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to rate very high on the happiness meter. Oh, where? tell me where this is. I'm moving. Well, yeah, well, I mean, much of Scandinavia would fall that into that category. Uh, you know, um, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of places that have figured out how to begin to take the steps towards real justice. And I mean that for people and for the planet. The redefining of success coupled with the design constraints that help you sort of manage your creative solutions within and toward that redefined success is what propels us there. Oh, yeah. I mean, people want to be successful. If I had an option to buy a different smartphone or to opt out of smartphone living, you can't, though. I mean, we're all too dependent on them now, so... Well, that's the same argument that people make about their cars and living in suburbia. Oh, true. Right? Good point. Um, yeah. And I think s- slowly at first, and I think ultimately rapidly, we will see a shift in at least what propels those cars to begin with. So the, the moving from a fossil fuel to either an electric or a, or a hydrogen base or some combination of the two. And overnight, it will seem like, why did we ever use internal combustion engines and gasoline to power our cars. It will seem like something quaint that people did in the past. Yeah, um, like using leeches to yeah, heal people. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I, I do think that these there are these sea change moments, and I think we are very connected, not to our cell phones, but we are connected to the service that they provide us. As other technologies emerge that liberate us from the, the literal object, as my former boss, Bill McDonough, used to like to describe this in relationship to washing machines. He'd say, nobody really wants to own a washing machine. They want their clothes clean. You know, you don't, you don't want that sort of big hunking machine in your basement. And you certainly don't want to have invested in it in a planned obsolescent way, meaning that like in 10 years, you've got to buy a new one because mm-hmm. the washing machine company has built that into it. What you really want is the washing machine company to own the washing machine and you just get the service in your home and then they're going to design it to last for 50 years not 10 years uh, because they're invested in the in its long life and they'll design it to be repairable and interoperable and they'll figure out how pieces of it can be reused uh, because it changes the dynamics of ownership and that's what the sharing economy is about right now too and again it's early days because so far the sharing economy has resulted in more car trips, not less, but ultimately ownership versus service is a critical distinction in moving past the kind of planned obsolescence. Uh, And that's, that's a, a, one of those big shifts I think that we're going to see coming. Fascinating. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the, the social justice relationship to climate change? I think like everybody, we find ourselves in endless text chats these days because we're all socially distanced. I've got these long, long threads of conversations with people. And, you know, I'm in Brooklyn. So, you know, sort of one of the epicenters of 
the national movement at this point, but Brooklyn has certainly played a role in a lot of uh, protest marches of late. And I, I don't know, I was saying to somebody recently where, you know, I was getting on my soapbox about change and (laughs) some of some of that soapbox that you've seen me standing on today. Um, And I was saying, you know, look, this is just the beginning. Um, What you're seeing when you see the challenges ahead of us for a transition in relationship to climate change, my great fear is that the resistance to change that manifests itself in the, in the disproportionate use of force, in this case by police, mm-hmm. um, will be only what we're seeing today will just scratch the surface of the kind of resistance to change when you're talking about decarbonizing the economy. So that was the conversation. And the question came back, to me, basically what you just asked, well, how is this about, like, what's the link between the protests in the streets today and climate change? And they're inexorably linked. First of all, there's a tremendous imbalance in terms of who pays the price for the profligate lifestyle that produces climate change. So it's typically people who have less mobility, uh, less access to the production of wealth are living in often communities of color in many cases are living in countries that have had uh, very limited economic development and they're suffering the biggest consequences of climate change. And so whether it's through drought, through increased uh, heat and morbidity um, as a result of uh, increased temperatures, whether it's uh, as a result of, the sort of collapsing of water and freshwater resources, all of these things, the disproportionate impact uh, on people of color in frontline communities uh, on labor is extreme. And so the Mm -hmm. two are inexorably linked in terms of who's being impacted. But I think even more so if you think about these power imbalances that we were talking about earlier and a kind of the Anthropocene is feminist is that the, the the very same way that that critique reveals how systemically connected systems of oppression are to um, their representation and power and economic and political control. Climate change is the result of that. It doesn't come from from nowhere, as we said. It was designed to be this way, and it was designed to provide privilege to the few at the cost of the many. And one of the really most beautiful, I think, thoughts about what the future can look like is if you reverse that around, if you turn that upside down, Mm -hmm. so that what we're thinking about is the benefit of the many and designing systems uh, of sharing and and resource protection and caring, and the term resource is even problematic in that regard, but that the communities of nature and humanity are seen as resilient and mutually reinforcing. First of all, it's a jobs program. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, like, it's really, it's about the distribution of the kinds of well-being that can come from not hoarding and having, you know, hyper inequality. And it doesn't have to come at the sort of political cost of, of democracy. It actually comes with a level of the growth and maturity of a democracy. So I, I think these things are all very connected and that climate is really 
it's, as I said, it's a, it's the background becoming foreground, but therefore it's the screen against which we are projecting precisely the life that we have designed. And therefore, when we look at that, we think, oh, we have to design that differently. One image that keeps replaying in my head, it's sort of a metaphor for everything that's going on right now, is uh, a few years ago, there was a viral video about Yellowstone National Park and how the park, its geographic topography was changed um, over time by the reintroduction of wolves. Do you know the video I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. So it starts off, it's sort of barren. There are too many deer, deer sort of dominating things. It's un, it's un, out of balance. Yep. And the reintroduction of wolves beats back the deer population, but all this other amazing stuff starts happening. Um, the birds come back, the beavers start building dams, the river, the riverbanks are reinforced and, and the whole landscape just blooms back into life and vivid, flourishing, beautiful detail. That's kind of how I look at our world right now. Like it's, it's just out of balance and it's not working. And when we get it back into balance, it's going to flourish and it's going to be great for everyone. It's not like the deer are, are suffering in this new model. Everything works better for everyone. And there are roles to play. I mean, insects, beavers, birds, it's not just, it's not just wolves and deer, you know, it's not two camps. Um, Yes. And what I would say, because I, I think it, the future is not a kind of, in my opinion, at least is not a return to a pre-industrial natural landscape, because I, I think one of the things about the Anthropocene is humanity really owning the responsibility for our technological capacity. Yes. So I guess why I'm thinking of that as a metaphor is I'm seeing humans in all these different roles. Like there are some humans with wolf energy. Those are the ones that are the agitators, the activists, the the ones that really run towards change and make it happen. There are the the birds who sort of form these, these flocks and are able to reinforce change in that way. I feel like I'm kind of a beaver. Like I'm over here building something that's going to reinforce a, a, a healthy structure. And when I look at it like that, and I see the, the role that everyone has to, to play in the Anthropocene, I also am connected back to what you said in the beginning is that there's an investment you feel when you when you're a maker, when you're a builder, when you are given the opportunity to build something of meaning, and you're invested in it, and you feel the pride of ownership and, and the pride of your workmanship it means a lot more. No, look, I, I agree with you fully. And I, I'm not naive about it. I think things could go wildly wrong. Many, many of them will. But I think that if we, and I keep using the word we, and I, I, I'm aware that, that that in my academic world, people would be saying, who are you, who are you referring to there uh, in the we sense? But when I think about humanity's potential to do things differently and to structure systems of equality and ecological resilience and opportunity that take advantage of our technological capacity, as well as our philosophical, you know, our ability to sort of frame the world in ethical and philosophical terms. I just think we sit at the point of, of really significant transition and um, that getting to work on that 
and really calling out the ways in which we distract ourselves from that work. The whole political discord that we are living through in this, in this country today is an enormous distraction from the work that we have to get done. Here, here. And sometimes, maybe often, certain politicians use that distraction to, to advance other objectives and uh, keep people busy following their short messages on a particular social media platform while other activities are going on. I mean, you know, we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted by the stupidity and the pettiness that mm -hmm. goes on in what is what falls for national politics right now. We must find ways of bringing people together to actually make positive change. The voices of reason for that have been so few and far between and a willingness to kind of engage in tearing things down. I mean, the Trump administration has undone more environmental policy in the last three years than has been written in the last 30. And, and it is um, just outrageously irresponsible that it isn't every night on the news the impact of what is going on because everybody is going to get fucked by that. It doesn't matter what political party you're from. Yeah. And so I, I just, I find that we are getting caught up in these ideological battles and not focusing on the systemic change that is the that is what our time is about. All of this could see tremendous greasing of skids with new administration. Absolutely. Potentially. It certainly couldn't be worse. And the fact that, th that all of this stuff has been written means it can be reinstated perhaps as easily as it was rolled back? It will take uh, quite a bit of work to bring it back. And I am in no way, let me be 100% clear, I am not making a kind of argument for uh, a curse on both your houses. I'm not saying that at all. This is not a, a, a kind of a false equivalence between administrations. The, the Trump administration is uniquely bad. Uh, right, right, right. Work. I, but yes, uh, uh, things can but, be put back. We will, for example, we will rejoin the Paris Accords. Uh, you know, I feel confident of that. We will do a lot of the things that have been undone have delayed us for four years from doing work that needs to occur. But it, there is real lasting damage as well in, in just the kind of the lack of continuity. We could have been making progress this whole time. Yes. And we cannot afford to continue to be distracted from making progress. You can't have, you know, when Jimmy Carter was president, the U.S. was one of the leading countries in solar energy research and technology. He had solar panels installed on the White House. One of the things that Ronald Reagan did when he won election in 1980 was to have those solar panels removed because he felt it was sending a signal to the oil industry that things were back to normal. So we've been playing uh, these kinds uh, of games yeah. for a very long time. Um, and of course, we no longer lead the world in solar energy technology. Uh, and so we've lost out in all sorts of markets as a result. So we've got work to do, and we've got work to do across different political administrations. We must have continuity, uh, at least of objective, even if they're going to be the twists and turns of the reality of different political leadership. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we don't have political leadership like right now. Let's just be honest about it. Well, I hear you. It's um, right now is a crazy time, but no matter who's in office in the next, in the coming years, um, continuity is key. 
I wonder if you, I, I'm really struck by something you said when I, before about not reverting to a pre-industrialized version of the planet. But I think a lot of us have trouble imagining what the Anthropocene could look like in full technological industrial harmony in that rebalancing of, of man and nature. Can you, can you just put some like concrete graphic details to that, paint a picture of what you imagine that could look like so we can kind of wrap our hopes and dreams into it? I think you're, you're hitting on a really important role for design, which is what sometimes gets called the cultural imaginary, you know, that we have the ability to, as designers, to paint a picture mm-hmm. of something that is not yet, but could be. And that therefore moving towards that vision, even if it's not realized in the sort of static, pure form of a master plan, you know, is a very important part of what, what design is about. And so what to me that looks like is, you know, the term resilience uh, gets used uh, quite frequently now. It's, uh, I, w- I would say it's about 15 years now that resilience has really been the, the language of what used to be called sustainability. And mm-hmm. what's meant by resilience is the capacity for systems to absorb change without suffering a system collapse. So there are always changes that are going to occur. There are always events that will disrupt and disturb a system that is functioning. And resilience is about the capacity to absorb that change without the system collapsing. So the first thing that the future looks like is circular and not linear. And I don't mean that in design terms. (laughs) I mean Mm -hmm. that in system terms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if, if we create very brittle, linear systems, whether those are supply chains or those are the, the planting of monocultures in agriculture, you know, so only planting uh, one species or cutting down diverse uh, mature forests and planting just one tree for harvesting, mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. kinds of linear systems are susceptible to system disruption and collapse. So you get all of a sudden, you get some invasive beetle or something that wipes out the entire forest. Or you have a supply chain that is so brittle that because all of the parts for some component of of the product or system are coming from one location and then an event occurs in that location and the supply chain is broken. And so the future, I think, looks a lot more like hybrids, redundancies, localized production, shorter supply chains, you know, interoperability. It does not mean that we are less global. In fact, I think we're more global. So one of the kind of uh, ironies of this moment is that the um, the sort of anti-globalization movements, which come from the political left and the political right, are actually creating, I think, a less resilient landscape. Um, because mm-hmm. there has to, because uh, the climate doesn't care where the nation, national border is. In any case, I think the future looks more circular in that sense. So circular economies, localized supply chains, you could find yourself really seeing local production, local food mm-hmm. production. So that's part of what makes the future, and I, which is 
really pretty exciting, I think. Yeah, um, I'm here with you. I'm feeling it. <laughs> um, I also think that the uh, product life cycles, whether those are buildings or industrial products, will be seen more in the service economy way that we spoke about previously. So you'll see the design for disassembly, the design for interoperability, the design for replacement, that we will start to account for the embodied energy and the ecological cost of the products and systems that make up society. So there'll be new accountings, new economies. Economists will always find themselves at the forefront of something. Um, <laughs> and so the, there will be a new economics, both as a, as a social science, but also as a kind of economic reality that will emerge that allow us to find measurable good in doing the right thing. So if all of a sudden you're starting to account for CO2, right? One of, the, one of the great ironies is that carbon dioxide is a free pollutant for the most part in the world today. There are these attempts to create markets and you know, cap and trade systems and so forth. But for the most part, we don't account for the waste that we produce. It is, it is dumped into the commons. It's in economics terms, it's externalized. I think what you will see are new economies will emerge that internalize those activities and therefore drive a whole series of changes that allow us to have the reduction of pollution be seen as a net positive economic good as well. And so the, the more that you start to think in systems that are circular, that take into account all these other benefits or criteria for success, the more you start to change the underlying linearity and determinacy of the system. So I can't draw you a picture that says it looks like this, but I can tell you that these are the systems that will define it. And then humanity and its incredible and diverse creativity will come up with answers to each of the challenges that we face um, in relationship to those new constraints that all of a sudden become ethical and foundational to our societies. Yeah, I'm following you. I think it's really interesting the point you brought up about being both localized and globalized at the same time. The image that came to mind, my mind is a, a weaving of sorts, like the long fibers that weave in and out are, are strengthened, but there's still a lot of activity happening locally. So, but the whole structure is reinforced by the rest of it. You have yet again said it more beautifully than I did. <laughs> well, listen, we got to decolonize, decarbonize. Yes. <laughs> the future is circular yep. and the Anthropocene is feminist. I, it's, we're, it all sounds good to me. <laughs> How do we get people to sign up? <laughs> we're trying, man. I yeah. think these conversations help, or at least yep. I have to believe that. Yeah. No, this, the, look, communication is at the very core of this. Well, I feel so enlightened by this conversation. I've learned so much and I, you know, I was a little worried that I would just feel the 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 weight of the years of frustration and the impending doom, but you've really infected me with your optimism and I appreciate that so much. And part of that I think is because now I can see the way forward and I can see all the work that's been happening I can also see all the work that still needs to be done, but I can see the tools, you yeah. know, and I, and I can take those tools into my own hands and, and make something with them. Beautiful. Well, I'm with you. Well, yay. Thank you so much. This has been, this has been really amazing.
Is there anything we didn't talk about that you would like to add before we wrap it up? We just need more justice. I, I don't, you know, I don't have the words to express the urgency of this moment and the urgency of the moments that are going to be coming. And we, we need a, a kind of commitment to our fellow humanity and understanding and an empathy that is just lacking so much in public discourse. I'm incredibly inspired by the people that are out on the streets raising their voices. And I'm hopeful about this change, but I think we're also in for um, some real challenges. And that may just be the way it has to be, but I would really hope that in the process we find our humanity, our shared humanity, because it is what really differentiates us as a species. And that's where my optimism comes from. That was beautiful. I wish for the same thing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. To see images of Joel's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help us a lot. We also love when you reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Our distribution partner is Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.